Beloved, God owns all the gold and silver. He is the one who has cattle on a thousand hills. Everything belongs to God. Now, on earth, of all the possessions that belong to the Lord, the one that is the most precious to him is his church. Because we have been bought with the infinitely valuable, imperishable blood of Christ. We are the temple of God. We are the earthly expression of the heavenly reality of the forgiveness of sin that Jesus Christ bestows upon his children. We are the flock of God. We are the building of God, the family of God. We are the body of Christ. And we understand from even these earthly metaphors, and even in, more importantly, the language God uses in Scripture, that one sheep doesn't make a flock. One brick doesn't make a building. One organ doesn't make a body. One person doesn't make a family. There are no lone wolves in Christianity. And because the church and the local church is the first visible expression of even the universal church, because it's so important to God, it should be so important to us as well. We even give testimony to the veracity and the power of the gospel by virtue of our association with our local body. Jesus told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount that you are the light of the world. You are a city set upon a hill that cannot be hidden. And notice there he says we are a city on the hill. We're not a bachelor pad on the hill. And so even the indivisible and indestructible unity of the universal church is maintained visibly in the local church. Now it is possible to be a member of the invisible universal church without being directly associated with the visible local church family of God but it's not good it's not right it's not healthy that's why the author of Hebrews in the first ten and a half chapters of this incredible sermonic epistle this letter to this group of Jewish believers the author spends ten and a half chapters laying out doctrine after doctrine Grace after grace, truth after truth, centered on the absolute superiority of Christ before he really launches in earnest into applying and exhorting the believers by virtue of these great doctrines he's laid out. And at the end of chapter 10, when the author launches into his series of exhortations, you may remember verses 24 and 25, the author says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, our passage this morning is chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. And this comes on the heels of what the author has laid out before us before. Again, the first ten and a half chapters of the great doctrines. Then he begins with the exhortation, as I just read towards the end of chapter 10, of encouraging us to be together, to come together, to be affiliated with one another in the local body of Christ. At the end of chapter 10, he also talks and begins this subject of endurance, of staying in the race for the long haul. 
Chapter 11, he gives example after example of godly men and women that were saved by faith alone and demonstrated true saving faith. They believed the word of God. They trusted the word of God and they obeyed the word of God. Light of example after example, chapter 11. Then at the beginning of chapter 12, he picks up the theme of endurance and says we are to run the race with endurance. It's not a sprint. It is a lifelong marathon. Um, That's in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12. Then in verses 4 through 11, he has this long discourse, which we covered last week on the Father's discipline, our our Heavenly Father's discipline of us. And you see, some pericopes of Scripture, some portions of Scripture are like that long discourse in verses 4 through 11, like a sniper rifle shot that just goes out straight and true and stays on its course. There are other portions of Scripture that are more like the staccato rapid fire of an automatic weapon. And that's what we have in verses 7 through 11. The author follows that long discourse and treatment of the Father's discipline with six rapid-fire exhortations towards godly living for you and for me in verses 7, excuse me, in verses 12 through 17, which I will read now. Please, beloved, follow along with me. This is the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12. The author writes, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that No root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral, godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. This is, beloved, the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now again, there are some portions that are one long theme and there are some that are rapid fire, like an inspired grab bag of spiritual vignettes, kind of like we might encounter when we read in many portions of Proverbs where we have one verse after another and we're not quite sure how they necessarily relate to one another, but they are inspired, therefore they are profitable for teaching, for training, for proof, for correction. That's what we have here with these exhortations. And look at the text, verse 12, he begins with, therefore. And as good students of the word, we proverbially ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. What he's saying is what was written before, especially the Father's discipline, is the basis for these series of exhortations. And we understand that when he told us to run the race in verses 1 through 3 is shed the weights, shed the sins so that you can run with endurance. And as he gets into this exhortation, as he goes from the doctrine to the direction, it connects with where we're at here. And beloved, what we'll do is when we look at these verses, these six exhortations, we'll put Three, the first three in, under one grouping and the second three under a second grouping. And what God is telling you and me here is he's saying this is what I want you to do and this is what I want you to avoid. 
be diligent and be vigilant. Uh, God says to you, the author, the Hebrew author to the original audience is saying to his audience, and God is saying to you and to me, I've got things for you to do, things for you to pursue, things for you to continue to run, and things for you to fight. Because, beloved, we must prepare ourselves properly to profit from the Father's discipline, to be properly exercised by it or trained by it, as we left back in verse 11. Bottom line is, you and I, we must accept discipline so that we, the Father's discipline, so that we can advance in discipleship. Now, the first grouping in verses 12 through 4, the first three exhortations is be strong, be strong. The second grouping, the latter three exhortations is beware. So be strong and be aware. The first is be strong. Here in verse 12, the author continues the athletic imagery of the race that he introduces to back in verse 1. And even there, we know that the race will be long, and it may be grueling. It may even be deadly, as in verse 4, where the author told the original audience that they had not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. They had not yet been called upon, providentially speaking, by God to offer up their very lifeblood for the defense and for their maintaining this race of faith. And so with that in mind, we understand we do not run in vain. And what God says, here's the first exhortation in verse 12, is strengthen the weak. Strengthen the weak. He says with this imagery, you're almost there. You've turned the corner. You can see the finish line. Don't stop now. Press on and keep running. Don't quit. Look at the text, verse 12. Therefore, Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Literally, the hands that are drooping and the knees that are paralyzed. Their arms are failing and their legs are buckling. What the author does here is he's pulling from the language that God had given to the prophet Isaiah to the nation of Israel back in Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4. The author Isaiah there said to the nation of Israel these words, Encourage the exhausted. Strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come and he will save you. You see, what God wanted for the nation of Israel through Isaiah, for this group of Jewish Christians 2,000 years ago with the author, and for you and me here in Gilbert, Arizona, is God wants steady persistence, not special performance. We are not to be the kind of flash-in-the-pan kind of people. The real challenge, beloved, is to stay the course when the going gets tough, when it's a long haul. And beloved, dear friend, we understand there is so much disappointment in a fallen world. And God says to you and to me, I don't want you to buckle I don't want you to fold. I want you to stay strong and stay straight. I've said this before. One of my favorite parentisms with my children was chin up, chest out, back straight. And I did mean that physically, but I was trying to communicate 
even the more important spiritual sense. And that was something I said to my children. I've said this too. That's actually good advice, even physically for any man or woman, no matter your age. But infinitely more importantly, spiritually speaking, here God says to you and to me, chin up, chest out, back straight in Christ because you're running this race not in vain no matter how difficult no matter how challenging it may be keep going now one thing in this entire passage here all the verbs except for one are plural and the context is the author speaking to a local church God is speaking to you and me here in Santan Bible Church we have a corporate responsibility it even ties back again to the beginning exhortation that I mentioned in chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. And this command here to strengthen the weak has an urgency. It's do it now, strengthen. There is a situation here that you need to corporately step up and strengthen the weak. What the dynamic here is in Hebrews as well as in Isaiah and even the rest of Scripture is the truth in your head and heart, the doctrines, the understanding, the instruction we have in our heart and head seeps into our spiritual arms and legs and strengthens them, spiritually speaking. Uh, excellent illustration of this was Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, where we read from good Dr. Luke that Paul and Barnabas were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And how blessed we were, even the rich lyrics that we were singing before and the songs here flow so well in this stream that we have here in our text. And beloved, while there is no one here that can empathize, and I'm counting myself, that can empathize or understand the severe imminent threat that this original audience faced, in which beloved brothers and sisters we have around the world that their very next step, God may call upon them to literally be willing to offer up their very lifeblood for the defense of the faith. Here in our cushy existence in America, we haven't yet reached that point, but... But we do understand that the day will come. The day will come for you, dear beloved, when your hands are drooping, your wind is missing, and your knees are shaking. And what God says to you right here in this passage is press on and keep running. So strengthen the weak. The second exhortation is straighten the crooked. Stay strong and stay straight. Look at verse 13, the author continues, and make straight paths for your feet. And in the same way he cited from Isaiah in verse 12, here he cites from Proverbs chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, where Solomon there wrote these words, let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. What the author of Hebrews says, make straight paths for your feet. The Greek word translated as paths describes the rut or the track that a wheel leaves behind it. And what God is telling you and me here is that every brother and sister in Christ, every man and woman, born again, daughter or God, son of the most high God, you are leaving a rut, you're leaving a track that others will follow. 
there is a greater severity and a greater significance for those men that are, God lifts up, the frail men that by God's grace and mercy he places in the position of pastor, elder, even deacons as we introduce four names to you. But every single believer, no matter what level of leadership you might have or not have, you are leaving a pathway in your wake that others will follow whether it's your children, whether it's friends, whomever it might be. So that's the command. But now God, as we continue in verse 13, gives us the purpose. Look at the text. So that the limb, which is lame, may, be, may not be put out of joint, may not be sprained or dislocated, but rather be healed be healed. He uses the physical imagery of the healing of a, of a lame limb to describe the spiritual healing that a brother or sister can enjoy in Christ. But the picture here is that a straight, clear road, while a straight and clear road, and by the way, this was written before planes, trains, and automobiles, and paved streets, and paved multi-purpose paths that you can bike and run on, a straight and clear path is a blessing physically for the physical lame, and even more importantly, no less so than for the spiritually lame. Now, let me pivot here for a moment in a direction that might be a bit surprising. I would say this, that one of the, one of, if not the biggest stumbling block often in Christendom are lame Christians. Now, there's a pivot there because you think, well, are, are we all of a sudden not being compassionate to the weak and the wounded? Well, what we want to understand, beloved, is from this entire passage, as I mentioned before, the main thrust behind the whole passage is this corporate responsibility. So absolutely, we each have a responsibility to come alongside the weaker brothers and sisters to help them on the clear and straight path. But first, we must examine our own selves, right? We must take the log and remove the log from our own eye so that we can see more clearly to come alongside our brother or sister to help them with their situation. It's kind of like the, when you get on the airplane and the stewardess goes through the ritual instruction at the beginning talking about how if there's a drop in cabin pressure, the masks will fall. And I remember when I was younger, the first time I was flying and I heard the instruction, if you're traveling with someone that needs help, like a young child or a disabled person, put your mask on first and then help the other with theirs. And I remember when I was young, I was thinking, well, that's kind of selfish. I mean, shouldn't I, you know, care for the person next to me? But the point there is if you pass out from lack of oxygen, you will be in no position to help your child or your disabled friend to put theirs on. In the same way, beloved, we need to examine the lameness and the weakness and the shaking knees and the drooping hands and the irregular path of our own hearts and minds and practice so that we are better able to come alongside the lame so that they would not be sprained but rather be healed. It's the same kind of dynamic the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, in Galatians 6.1. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. So the main thrust of this entire passage is corporate, but there is always an individual element to be sure. 
And by the way, the strengthen the weak was that urgent command right now. This straighten the crooked is an ongoing sense. That's our continual marching orders to straighten the crooked with the intent that your brothers and sisters around you would be encouraged and freed from the crippling spirit of despondency or self-pity. And this takes us into the third exhortation. After strengthen the weak with an urgent sense, straighten the crooked in an ongoing sense, strive for the goal also in an ongoing continual. Keep stretching out, keep striving for the goal set before you. And in verse 14, the author is dealing with harmony and holiness, peace and war, peace with man and war with sin. Look at verse 14. He says, pursue peace with all men. Pursue. Run fast after something. Run faster after that peace in order to catch it. Uh, The word would be used as in a chase or even in a battle. And As I briefly mentioned before, this is the only command in all these exhortations, the only verb that's singular. So he's saying, you, you yourself pursue peace. You pursue peace. I, when I look in the mirror, you, Clay, pursue peace with all men. Insofar, now notice what he says here. He doesn't say achieve peace with all men. He doesn't say make peace with all men. He says pursue peace peace with all men. You and I are not responsible for the outcome, but you and I are responsible for our behavior, for our thinking, for our heart, for our imagination, for our motive. It's the same dynamic that God gave the instruction through the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. In Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. So peace is what we are to strive for. But notice as the text continues in Hebrews 12, 14, this is not peace at any cost, at any price. Pursue peace with all men and, again, look at the text, the sanctification, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we can ask the question, what kind of holiness is this? Is this positional holiness Uh, Or is this practical holiness? And in this case, this is clearly practical holiness. He's not talking about the kind of holiness that, he's not telling an unsaved person, well, pursue holiness and maybe God will save you. Uh, a, A dead person can't pursue anything. Last time I checked, dead people aren't very good runners. So when he says pursue holiness, he's speaking to believers to pursue the practical holiness, the ongoing sanctification by which you and I are molded and made more and more into the image of Christ through times of cushy prosperity and through times of distressing tribulation is the exhortation here. You see, Holiness does not produce salvation. Salvation produces holiness. Which came first? Which came first? Here's a quiz. The chicken or the egg? As creationists, we understand the chicken came first, then the egg. Well, in the same way, which came first? Salvation or holiness? Understanding scripture, salvation came first. Holiness, this kind of practical. Now, there's that positional holiness where God rescues us, takes us, plucks us from the 
fire and places us into the family of God where now we are positionally holy. But the kind of practical holiness here is a product of salvation. And to even unpack this a little bit more, this practical holiness, this is not the sneaking suspicion that somebody somewhere might be having a good time. That's not the kind of holiness he's talking about here. This is not the kind of holiness that, well, I don't drink, smoke, or chew or run with those who do. No, the kind of practical holiness he's talking about here, it's not merely a celebration of what we've been saved from. It is here a pursuit of what we've been saved to, what we have been saved towards. We strive and stretch for the goal, even as we have turned the corner and we see the finish line. And this is also a continuation from what went before. Just back in verse 10, in 12.10, God the Father, our spiritual heavenly Father, disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. He disciplines us for his good so that we may share in his holiness, which is the goal line, the command that we are striving for here, and even the peaceful fruit of righteousness at the end of verse 11. This harvest of fruit of peaceful righteousness. It's all about the root and the fruit. The Belgic Confession has a great statement on the significance of the faith by which we are saved, the faith that believes the Word of God, trusts the Word of God, and obeys the Word of God. We're saved by faith alone, apart from the works of the law, but the faith that saves us is not alone. And the Belgic Confession has these good words, quote, It's impossible for this holy faith to be unfruitful in a human being, seeing that we do not speak of an empty faith, but of what Scripture calls faith working through love. So, beloved, this pursuit of harmony and holiness, it's fighting sin and living faithfully and living lovingly, of loving our brothers and sisters and even our neighbor as ourselves and of loving God. And this harmony, we could say harmony and holiness are two sides of the same spiritual coin. And the harmony is not at the expense of the holiness. The harmony that we strive for is based upon the holiness which we also strive towards. And this is not a new combination in Scripture. King David, in Psalm 34, King David said, Depart from evil and do good. That's holiness. Seek peace and pursue it. Same language as the author of Hebrews. Or Jesus, our Lord Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 8, and 9. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the holy, blessed are the peaceful. And to see God as Jesus taught there, or to see the Lord as the author of Hebrews has for us here in verse 14. That is the highest and the most glorious blessing that a creature can enjoy. To see God and not be consumed and destroyed is the greatest and highest blessing we may enjoy. And wrapping this up, how could we summarize? Is there a good way to summarize what it is for you and me to pursue peace and to pursue holiness? Love God, love your brother and sister, and love your neighbor. By doing that, you will be effectively pursuing peace and holiness. So 
That is be strong, the first grouping. The second grouping of the latter three exhortations is beware, beware. And what the author says in verses 15 through 17 is it is a responsibility of every son and daughter of God to watch over one another from the weakest to the strongest. Look at the beginning of verse 15. You read, see to it. See to it. Again, this is a plural verb. The local church is the domain. And mark this. What he is saying here and as he goes forward is the spiritual welfare of the entire congregation is the responsibility of the entire congregation. Again, as I mentioned before, to be sure, the elders are the tip of the spear, but every one of us share this exhortation, this command, this responsibility before the Lord. See to it. It's the Greek word episkopeo. Uh, We get the English word episcopal or episcopalian from it. Uh, The epi is a little preposition that intensifies a scope, to make it a super scope, to be the source of a supervisor, one who supervises something under their watch, to look at things carefully, deeply, and fully. Uh, Both Peter and Paul use this word in the verb form and the noun form to describe the office of overseer. 1 Peter 5, 2, Peter there writes, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. That same word, episcopeo, that the author of Hebrews says to all of us to see to it. Exercising oversight voluntarily, according to the will of God with eagerness. Now Paul uses the word in its noun form in Acts 20, in Philippians 1.1, in Titus, and in First and Second Timothy, again, to describe the office of overseer in the church. But the original meaning of the word means to come alongside to help, to be concerned about, to show care for. For example, it's used in, uh, Christ used this word in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25, verse 36. He's giving a picture when people said, well, Lord, how did we show our love towards you? And Lord Jesus speaks metaphorically. He says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. You episcopeo me. You saw to it. You watched over, to, over me. I was in prison and you came to me. Even the author of Hebrews used this word previously back in chapter 2, verse 6, to describe the loving shepherding care of the Son, of Lord Jesus. Hebrews 2, 6, the author there said, he's quoting from the Old Testament, what is man, speaking to God, that you remember him, or the Son of man that you are concerned about him, that you episcopeo him? But now, beloved, the whole point here is, God is telling us we all have this responsibility. So we go from the tender care of the Lord to the loving, shepherding care of the elders. And each one of us have this responsibility because the exhortation is not focused on the pastors and the elders, but the whole body. And this, in one sense, asks, or excuse me, answers a question that was asked some 6,000 years ago. You may remember Cain, after he murdered his righteous brother Abel, And God, of course, knew precisely what had happened, but God asked of Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, of course, that was a very unique, one-off situation in God's history, but we know the answer to that. Yes, I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. We have a responsibility to one another. So that is the overarching grouping 
But now what the author says is under this umbrella of watching over the body that we all share, he gives us three warnings. Beware. We see them marked out. Beware. He says, see to it that no something. No. And then a third, no. The first warning that we see here is beware leaving anyone behind because eternity is at stake. Verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. John Chrysostom, the 4th century expository preacher, said, The image here is taken from a company of travelers, one of whom lags behind and so never reaches the end of the long and laborious journey. And I love the author of Hebrews, this preacher, this author, is a pastor and you see the same kind of heart cry from this pastor as he gave back in chapter 4 verse 1 where the author said let us fear lest while a promise remains of entering his rest any one of you should seem to have come short of it same kind of risk or you see the same kind of pastoral heart in the apostle Paul when he wrote to the immature church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 6.1, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Uh, here in our verse, in verse 15, when the author says comes short of, the grammar there helps us understand he's not talking about a single defection. He's not talking about a single sin or even a series of sins, no matter how significant and serious they are. Uh, King David committed adultery and murder, yet he was saved despite those sins. The grammar here, when he says comes short of it, talks about a continuous state. And the charge to you and I because of this danger, it's about care and concern. It's not about nosiness and busybodiness. And beloved, because, again, we're talking about the eternal end of the soul of man and woman, John Calvin said this. He's talking about the moving from the illustration of physical fire to the danger of eternal fire. Calvin said, when there's a danger of fire, we don't hesitate to violently snatch away those whom we desire to save. So it's not enough. He understands it's not enough to beckon away from the eternal flame with the finger or kindly stretch forth the hand. The Puritan Thomas Manton in the same vein said this, If we spare, God will not spare. If we hazard our bodies in bearing our testimony, we save our souls. We must cry out upon sin with a full throat. And that again and again. When a fire is kindled in a city, we don't coldly say, yonder is a great fire. I pray, God, that it would do no harm. You see, in times, Manton continues, in times of public defection, we're not to read tame lectures of contemplative divinity or fight with ghosts and antiquated errors, but we are to oppose with all earnestness the growing evils of the world, whatever it costs us. That's the exhortation that comes from the first warning. Beware leaving any behind. The second warning is beware allowing sin to fester. Beware allowing sin to fester. You see, the author understands. God wants you and I to understand that the local church should be a living example of harmony and holiness. 
And one embittered, rebellious person in her midst, in the midst of the local church, can have a disastrous effect. Look at the rest of verse 15. See to it, second warning, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. So the author continues what we saw earlier in the chapter of going back and forth between the imagery of athleticism and the imagery of agriculture. And in agriculture, one noxious root can poison an entire crop. And what the Hebrew author here to this group of Hebrew believers is doing, he's taking from the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, where there God warned again the nation of Israel, this time through Moses, with these words. Lest there shall be among you a man or a woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God. Lest there shall be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. And in, excuse me, in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they use the same word here in Genesis 12, 15 as bitterness for the Hebrew word wormwood there in Deuteronomy 29. And beloved, the point here is this. Whether it was the nation of Israel, the Jewish believers, or you and me, bitterness is never merely a personal matter. That's why the author here in verse 15 says, and by it many be defiled, stained, polluted, contaminated, soiled. It's the same word that Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, used in verse 8 of Jude. These men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh. Uh, Calvin, again, here's a second quote from Calvin, was describing the fact that the defiled, this kind of defiled, can't touch anything without defiling it. And Calvin said, quote, They have within a, within a fountain of pollution which spreads itself over and infects everything about them, end quote. You see, beloved, the kind of bitterness the author is warning against here, God is warning against here, is a deadly contagion. It corrupts and it soils. And, mark this, it's an on-ramp onto the pathway of sin. That is the danger. That is the risk. It could soil the harvest of, the, of verse 11, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. A root of bitterness will spoil and soil that harvest because, again, the root determines the fruit. And so the clear application here is if incipient sin arises, if sin begins to bud in its infancy form of the serious nature, sin of heresy, sin of impurity, sin of disunity, it needs to be nipped in the bud. It needs to be eradicated immediately. So the author says, beware leaving any behind. Beware allowing sin to fester. The third and final warning in verses 16 and 17 is beware waiting until it's too late. You see, beloved, dear friend, sin can harden to the point of no return. That's why verse 16, the author says, see to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. So after all the examples from Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah up to Rahab, the unnamed martyrs that are listed in chapter 11 set before us as positive examples, the author now gives a counter example, the man Esau. 
I don't have time to go through the whole story. If you're not familiar with it, I would commend you read Genesis chapter 25 through 27. But the author here in our text says that there be no immoral person, pornos. The same word will be translated in chapter 13 of Hebrews verse 4 as a fornicator. It's describing the vile, rotten stench that goes with any kind of sexual sin. No immoral person or godless person, profane person, worldly person. This immoral, profane, godly descriptor that the author uses here, Paul used very often to describe false teachers. But putting these together, what he's saying is any kind of sensual or material or physical pleasure that takes priority over the spiritual inheritance is the danger. This is a life that is characterized like the, the sad example of Esau with a preoccupation with instant gratification. That's why in citing the historical account of Esau and the rest of verse 16, the author says, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. So he came in from the hunt, and he so, so disdained the birthright. So Esau was a twin with Jacob, but Esau came out of the womb first. So with the law of primogeniture, he had the right of the double blessing. He had the right that God's covenant promise to Abraham would come and flow through him. And he came in, and he was so consumed with the physical heat of the moment with his hunger, he said, what does my birthright mean to me if I'm dead? Make, give me some of that red stuff. And he had no thought of God at all. And in Genesis 25, verse 34, we read these words about Esau. Thus Esau despised his birthright. But even more to the point, beyond the horror of him despising the birthright that comes from God's promise to Abraham, he despised all the holy things of God. The pastor Newell, who has an excellent commentary on Hebrews, said this about him, quote, Esau knew no more of God than did the beasts he hunted. He had no sense of the infinite value of eternal things. To sell, out, to sell out eternity for one mess of meat in this passing, dying world marks the man Esau. And then in verse 17 here in our text, we finish up. For you know. So the author knew that his group of Jewish Christians knew the story of Esau. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. So when he came back in after he had been deceived, after Jacob had been deceived, sorry, after Isaac, after Isaac had been deceived by Sarah and Jacob, and Isaac had given the double blessing, the blessing of the firstborn, though it was through the deception of Jacob and Sarah, when Esau came in afterwards, he wept with tears, and he was weeping, wanting to recover that. But mark this, he did not have true repentance, even as we sang before. He was not seeking God or true repentance. Esau was concerned with the punishment. He was concerned with the birthright and the blessing, but not with being right with God. He showed no remorse whatsoever regarding his wicked sin. 
A great contrast would be King David, who after he committed the horrific adultery and murder that I referenced before, in Psalm 51, demonstrates that he had true repentance. Now, there were still consequences for the magnitude of his wicked sin, but he had true repentance. He wasn't concerned. He didn't focus on the punishment. He focused on his standing before the Lord. He didn't seek to cover up his sin. He was concerned with the cleansing and the forgiveness that would come from God. It's the kind of distinction between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow that Paul cites when he wrote to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 7.10, the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You see, Esau wept. He had tears, but, beloved, tears alone do not signify true repentance. There are many men and women who are brokenhearted over their sin, but who are really brokenhearted over the consequences of their sin. They don't agree in the heart with God about the wickedness of their sin. And perhaps they still love their sin, or even they seek to justify the sin. One pastor said this well when he said repentance is true when there is a godly detestation of the sin that was committed a godly hatred of the sin that i committed against god dear friend don't be an esau as long as it's still called today there is room because esau found no place for repentance he found no place for repentance in his heart Beloved, dear friend, God makes it abundantly clear that for someone that comes to God, for someone that comes to Christ broken in their heart with true repentance over any sin, no matter the severity or the weight or how long, that Jesus himself promised he would receive you to himself. But Esau had gotten the point of hardening that there was no place in his stone-cold heart for sin. Beware waiting until it's too late. In 1985, there were multiple newspaper articles, New York Times, local papers in Ohio, that described a situation where in the state of Ohio, there was a celebration held at a municipal pool. And they were celebrating the fact that in the prior year, there had been no drowning deaths. So they had some 200 people in a three-hour long party around this pool, which included about 100 lifeguards. At the end of the celebration, four lifeguards were clearing out the pool, and they discovered a fully dressed body in the deep end. They pulled 31-year-old Jerome Moody out, but they were unable to resuscitate him. It was too late. He died. He died in a celebration of 100 lifeguards surrounded by them as they were celebrating their successful season. Beloved, dear friend, we have a responsibility to one another to leave no one behind, to realize, to not allow sin to fester, and to help all of us to understand not to wait until it's too late. In Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, the author said this, take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
And my final close will be from the beautiful hymn, How Firm a Foundation. These are words, these are singing words from God to you and to me in Christ. Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed. For I am thy God, and I will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. And then, beloved, mark these final two lines. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, Lord Jesus, for this great salvation. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself in Scripture. Thank you for the instruction, the exercise, the training, the discipline that comes to us in your word. Lord, when our arms droop and our knees begin to buckle, Lord, may these spiritual truths strengthen us for your glory to run the race with endurance, to fight the fight with energy, with love, with trust in you, and love for our brothers and sisters, and love for those in this lost and dying world. Lord, help us to bring the good news of the forgiveness of sin that you secured. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we leave from here with this great message. Amen.